0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul and I will be your host for today's episode. It is my pleasure today to have the opportunity to talk to and interview Bob Fisk. Bob is a former president of the American College of Trial Lawyers. He went to Yale undergrad, Michigan law school. He's had a 50 plus year career in trial law and handled an amazing breadth of cases and roles, including the former United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, Bob, welcome. Thank you. Where I would love to start is your career decision to leave when you were a young lawyer the Davis-Polk Law Firm to go work at the United States Attorney's Office.
1: I was in my second year at Michigan Law School, summer of 1954, and I had the benefit of working that summer in the U.S. Attorney's Office as a summer intern in a program started by the then U.S. attorney, uh, Judge Lombard, J. Edward Lombard, who had the idea of starting this program where second-year law students would work one-on-one with assistant U.S. attorneys. And it was an extremely uplifting experience. It was thrilling. And we had a a major trial of a drug dealer named uh, Tony D'Angelo. And I was able, as a summer associate, to I wrote memos, I interviewed witnesses. I wrote the request to charge. I sat with Fred at the counsel table during the trial, and we got a conviction despite the fact that right before the trial, the girlfriend of our principal witness was murdered in an obvious attempt to intimidate the witness. The witness testified, and later the people that killed her were convicted of obstruction of justice. So it was a pretty heady experience for a second year law student. So I went back to Judge Lombard at the end of the summer, and I said, this has been fantastic. I would like to come back. And he said, well, that's a great idea. You should come back, but I think you should first go to a firm and get some experience and some training in private practice. So I went to the firm of Davis Polk, which, for reasons which I can explain later. And I had been there about two years when uh, Judge Lombard called up and said, don't you think it's about time that you apply to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I said yes. And I went to the partner that I was working for principally, a man named Hazard Gillespie, and told him I wanted to do it. And he had a very negative reaction to that. He said, that's a terrible idea. And to give you just a little bit of background, which is important, when Judge Lombard came in, in the fall of 1953, um, or the spring, I guess, of 1952, he was the first U.S. attorney in the Eisenhower administration. He was very close to Herbert Brownell, Eisenhower's attorney general. And Lombard himself had been an assistant U.S. attorney. In fact, had been the head of the criminal division for a legendary U.S. attorney named Emery Buckner. And in the Buckner days, the office was run totally without regard to politics. People were hired completely on their professional merit. What had happened is that over time, with 20 years of Democrat administrations leading up to 1952, this isn't a political statement, it's just a fact, the office had lost a lot of its luster, most of its luster. People were selected based on their political connections without regard to their merit. If you didn't have the endorsement of your political leader, you didn't get the job. And believe it or not... At that time, the position of an assistant U.S. attorney was a part-time job. People could work on the side in private practice. But when Lombard came in, he abolished all of that. He fired literally all but two, I think, of the 56 assistant U.S. attorneys. And then he brought in people from that were energetic and highly motivated young lawyers, and he restored the office to the way it had been back under Buckner when he was the head of the criminal division. But I don't think that change had filtered through entirely to the people in private practice. So I think in fairness to Gillespie, he may have viewed the US Attorney's Office more the way it was prior to Lombard than it was while Lombard was there. But in any event, he said, this is a terrible idea. Don't do it. If we leave, we're not sure we'll take you back. If we do take you back after two or three years, you'll come and you'll be way behind all of your contemporaries who've been here working with the partners while you've been up there, you'll be way behind them, even if we did take you back. I went back to Judge Lombard and said, well, you know, I'm getting a little flack here. And he said a very simple question. He said, of the people that are telling you not to do it, have any of them ever been there? And, of course, the answer was no. So I went back to Gillespie and I said, you know, I think I really do want to do this. And he said, all right, but just do me one favor. Go talk to somebody who I think is the most, the leading lawyer in New York City today. He's a man who's had public service himself. His name is Bruce Bromley. He's a senior partner at the Cravath firm. He was a judge on the New York Court of Appeals. So I said, sure. So I went to see Judge Bromley, and, and I got exactly the same reaction from him. Don't do this. You're with a great firm, you're working with great lawyers like Hazard Gillespie, Ralph Carson, Ted Kendall, you go up to the U.S. attorney's office, the experience isn't that good up there anyway, and you'll be really missing out on an enormous opportunity. So he he was just as negative as Gillespie. So I came back, and I'd been married that same summer of 1954. When I started in the, as a summer intern in the U.S. Attorney's Office, when I got married to my wife, Janet, and coincidentally, we'll be celebrating our 67th wedding anniversary this come August. So I remember there's a little park uh, in New York, north of where we were living, and we walked one night in May, we walked around 57, we walked around that park, and I had them for about two hours, just talking about the pros and cons of what should I do. And obviously, the negative was, if I decided to do this, I would be going against the advice not only of Gillespie, but the other partners at Davis-Polk that agreed with him, and also against the advice of the person they had sent me to, who they viewed as the most independent-minded, best lawyer in New York. And so on the one hand, they weren't going to take me back if I left, if I did come back, I'd be behind. So one side of me said do I really want to make kind of a career-ending decision at age 28? On the other hand, I fortunately, I'd been there. I knew what it was like in that summer. And in the end, that was what convinced me to do it. And I also had the feeling that you know, when I look back on my career, whenever it ended, I'd gotten a public service bug from Judge Lombard. I wanted public service in my career. And I decided this was the time to do it. So I went to Gillespie and I told him, and he said, okay, you've obviously given it a careful thought. I wish you all the best. Didn't say, I'll take you back. But anyway, so I went off to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the summer of
0: 1957. What was it that drove you in that direction? From someone on the outside thinking about it, you're leaving a high-profile law firm in New York City to go work for the federal government. Your mentor is telling you, that's a bad idea, the guy they send you to, who they really respect says that's a bad idea and you decide I'm doing it anyway.
1: First of all, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. That really appealed to me in that summer. And I've been at Davis Polk for two years and I could see very clearly that at Davis Polk, it was gonna take me quite a while to get anything even close to meaningful trial experience. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, the, practically the day after you get there, you're on trial in some one form or another. And I had watched that happen during that summer. So number one, it was a great opportunity to get trial experience that I would never get that soon anyway in private practice. And secondly, there was just something about the environment there, just the collegiality of the assistant U.S. attorneys, the de Corps, working together for the public. good. There was a very inspiring move to be to think you could be part of and that was also a big part of it and also judge lombard was a big believer in public service and so many of his assistants left the office came back later in so many different ways in public service and that was the third part of it i really wanted to do public service in the form of uh, working for the government so it was really those three things
0: this may be too personal for this early in the interview so i apologize if it is but i'm, I'm assuming leaving the firm and moving to government service, there was a pay cut, not worried about the specific amount, but was there? Yes,
1: no question about it. And in fact, that was one of the things that motivated me when I was up there. I really looked at it as though I was paying for the opportunity to have this government service as an assistant U.S. attorney. And so I told myself, you better make the most of it when you're (laughs) up there. So That motivated me to to work even harder,
0: I think. I want to talk about a trial. And really, uh, one of the things that impressed me about your career is how at all stages, including even when you were the United States attorney for the Southern District in New York, you were still trying cases and arguing appeals. If you had to think of just from uh, an experience for you, what was the most meaningful trial you've had in your career?
1: If I had to pick two, one in government service and one in private practice, the the government case would be the prosecution of drug dealer Nikki Barnes. This was the late 70s. New York was kind of a bad place in those days, and to a major extent because of the narcotic traffic, particularly heroin and Harlem and the South Bronx. And Nikki Barnes, named Leroy Nikki Barnes, was the leader of the largest drug ring in that area, probably in the country. And he had been indicted four times by the state DAs, twice in Manhattan, twice in the Bronx. And he'd been acquitted four times. Four different juries had found him not guilty. And so he had obtained his reputation. They called him Mr. Untouchable. So in the spring of 1977, we indicted him in the Southern District he and 14 others of his colleagues. And there were two very good assistants that were gonna try the case, Tom Sear and Bob Mazur with a brand new assistant uh, who made to become a federal judge, Denise Coe. That was what it was until uh, morning in June, I think it was actually June 5th, 1977. I went out to the mailbox to get the Sunday New York Times and there on the cover of the New York Times magazine was a picture of Nikki Barnes in a very arrogant pose on the courthouse steps. And in the article, the caption basically said, this is Nikki Barnes, Mr. Untouchable. Inside, there was a long article which basically described his lifestyle as sort of a spit in your eye, very flamboyant lifestyle, which described him as thumbing his nose at officialdom. And he it said he had 100 suits, 300 pairs of shoes, Maserati, Lincoln Continental, uh, Mercedes-Benz, two luxury apartments. And basically, it all the story about he basically led the police in Harlem on wild chases around Harlem where they could never catch him. And the article culminated in the story where uh, he was in the wa- washroom during the trial, one of those trials. And he went in and there was a detective standing next to him, washing their hands in the basins. The detective reached for the towel rack and wiped his hands with a paper towel. Dickey Barnes reached into his pocket, pulled out a roll of $100 bills, dried his hands with the bills and threw them at the cop and walked out. And probably the most insidious part of all of this is that he had become kind of a role model for young African-American kids in the Parliament in the South Bronx. So the white guys go to Wall Street, and we can be drug dealers and we can make a lot of money and, and escape prosecution like Nikki Barnes. So the article basically ended by saying, well, he's been acquitted four times in the state. courts. course, now the feds are taking their shot, but the betting in Harlem is Nicky's going to win again. So that was Sunday. The next morning, I went to work about nine o'clock in the morning, the phone rang. And it was Griffin Bell, the attorney general. He said, Bob, I've just come from a cabinet meeting. And President Carter read this article. And he told the cabinet, this is the most important case in the United States right now. Because if we can't put somebody like this away, there's something wrong with our criminal justice system. And Bell said, the president asked him, we have a good case, don't we? And Bell, of course, who knew nothing, said, "Oh, yeah, don't worry, Mr. President, we've got a very strong case." And then he said to me, "We do, don't we, Bob?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's got its problems, informants, credibility issues, but I think in the end we'll be okay." And then there was a pause, and he said, "Bob, this case is really important to the president." And I said, "I got it." And just stepping back. Judge Lombard, when he was U.S. attorney, and he was certainly a major role model of mine, had tried a couple of cases himself. And he had the belief that for a U.S. attorney, going into court and trying cases yourself was an important part of leadership. He analogized it to a general leading his troops riding into battle. And so when I went up there, I had in mind that I, I really wanted to try at least one or two major cases. And so the next morning I called in Tom and Bob and Denise and said I was taking over the, the prosecution and I did. And I tried it with Tom and Bob. Judge Worker, who was a trial judge, said he didn't want more than three lawyers for the government. So unfortunately, Denise Code had to drop out. But I, I tried the case very collegially with, with Bob and Tom. And fortunately we convicted him and really he went away for life.
0: How have you gained credibility with the jury? What are the things you do, or is it even unintentional, but what what are the things, if any, you do to try to gain credibility with the jury?
1: Well, I think a lot of it, just being yourself, part of my uh, approach to trials and my approach to practice of law generally is to try to treat everyone with respect and civility We had some pretty obstreperous defense counsel in that case with 14 defendants. There was a lot of tension in the courtroom at all times. And I think just maintaining your composure, your civility, and that makes a big difference. The other thing is being on top of the facts. I think when there's an objection and you say that's misstating the testimony and then the court reporter reads it back and it turns out you're right. And that happens four or five times in a row then the jury gets confidence in that you know what you're doing. It's really a combination of those things.
0: Let me press in a little bit on maintaining composure and civility. If I hear you, it sounds like there's a correlation for you between being calm and respectful and professional and those actually multiplying into being more trustworthy with the jury.
1: I think that's correct,
0: yes. How much of that with you is just your natural demeanor, and I ask, compared to just intentional efforts to stay calm? In other words, are you naturally calm, or is that something you have to work at?
1: I would say that I have the advantage of being ordinarily, as you put it, naturally calm. Obviously, as everyone that's tried a case knows, there are times in a trial when that gets tested. And you have to work to make sure you maintain that. And I can't say that I've been perfect all my life, but I think I have been able to maintain it most of the time. And I think that does make a big difference. And, and the other point, and I learned this from Hazard Gillespie, one of my mentors, who right from the beginning, told me that you can be a really hard-hitting, aggressive trial lawyer and at the same time be very civil and courteous to everyone. Those are not in any way inconsistent. And I think being able to do that, do both of those things is really important and really effective.
0: What's the longest, you mentioned preparation and the amount of time that you spend to prepare for a cross-examination. What's the longest cross-examination you ever did in trial?
1: I think it was the cross-examination of Anthony Scotto. And it was a very simple issue for the jury. He was the head of the ILA, and he we indicted him for taking payoffs from companies who had workers on the dock, and basically he was taking payoffs to prevent his, the ILA workers from doing slowdowns, which would, if they slow down the unloading of the cargo in the docks, it throws everyone off schedule, spoils, companies lose a lot of money, so he was getting regular payoffs from employees of the companies that employed as union workers. And we had that on tape. And so there were actually tape recordings of him receiving regular $5,000 payments, in, in one case, from one witness, and the other witness was without tapes. But Scotto's defense was that, he, yes, he took the money. There's no question about that. But he was known because he was a very effective labor leader, extremely popular with his union. He raised all sorts of money for a lot of different political leaders, mayors of New York, governor of New York, all of them, by the way, several of whom testified as character witnesses at the trial, including then-Governor Kerry, who came down from Albany to testify as a character witness. So he had raised a lot of money for Kerry, for Cuomo when he ran for... Mayor against Ed Koch. And his defense was, most of the people I raised money from paid by check. But for some reason, these people wanted to pay by cash. So yes, I was collecting money from them, but it wasn't a payoff. It was just part of my fundraising for Cuomo or Kerry or others. And so that was the position his lawyer, a great criminal defense lawyer, Jimmy LaRosa, took in the opening statement. Yes, he took the money, but it was a political contribution, not a payoff. So I knew from day one, unlike most cases, he was going to take the stand. So when we divided up the direct during the month we were putting on our case, I delegated a lot of that to Alan Levine and Scott Muller, who tried the case with me and spent almost every night preparing my cross-examination of Scott. So I had a full month to prepare before they started their case. And the defense case actually went for a couple of weeks, including all these character witnesses. And so by the time Scotto testified six weeks in, I'd had that time to prepare. And I think the cross-examination lasted three days.
0: In your career, a common thread that I see throughout is collaborative environments with talented lawyers where you build teams of superstars. So I'd love to kind of talk about that for a little bit. And if I could begin, let's start with the hardest part. What's the hardest part of leading a team of superstars?
1: First of all, the first thing that goes into building a team is selecting the people that you want to be on the team. And if you do that right, then it becomes much easier. Because one of the most important ingredients of a team effort is indeed a team effort where everybody basic objective is we want to win this case, not how much of a role can I personally have in it. And so you have to start with people that are willing to work together as a team to accomplish that. And if you've done that, then I think then I think it becomes much easier.
0: And so on the concept you're talking about about selecting a team that kind of has a unified vision of what you're trying to accomplish rather than individual self-interest, how have you been able to select the talent? Because I know there are people in the world that are going to try to put their own career or their own self-interest at times ahead of a team vision. How have you managed to select people that are really good team players like that? What are you looking for? What are the clues to you? What are the questions you ask? How do you avoid a lousy team player from getting on your team?
1: Well, I'll, I'll give you two examples. At Davis Polk, of course, I've been there and I've worked with virtually every one of, of the associates and the other partners from time to time. so that I knew the people. And in every firm, there are people that meet the criteria that I described and there's some that don't. So I had the advantage as Davis spoke, of knowing the people ahead of time. So when I put my teams together, it was always people like that that met those criteria. Unfortunately, that was most of the people. I had another experience where I didn't know people, and that's when I was appointed to investigate President Clinton's involvement with Whitewater. So there, I had to produce a team. So I started out in the first day, basically, with three people that had worked with me at Davis Paul, who had then gone to the U.S. Attorney's Office. But I didn't want it to be uh, just a New York operation. I wanted this to be a national team. And I would say in the first two days, three days after I was appointed, I probably had 300 resumes that came in from all around the country. And I started looking at them and there were lots of people that looked very good on paper. But I basically said, you know, I don't really know these people. I don't know their subjective qualities. I don't know whether they're team players. And so I decided I would just reach out to people that I knew. So the first person I called was Griffin Bell, then a former attorney general then at King and Spaulding. And I obviously worked with him when I was U.S. attorney. I said, Griffin, if you had my job, there's probably a 45-year-old partner that you would bring on as your chief assistant. Could I have that person for three years? And, and he said, let me think about it. And he called me back the next day If you're talking to another former American College president, Frank Jones. And the two of them called me back and they said, we have just the person for you. His name is Bill Duffy. And we I met him. We hit it off. And he did a great job, went on to become... U.S. attorney, later a federal judge down there. And then I only had Julie O'Sullivan. I wanted another woman. So I called Bob Mueller. Bob had just left the criminal division in the Bush administration. He's working in Wilmer Hill in Washington. And I said, Bob, do you have like a fourth or fifth year woman associate that you think would be good for this? He said, I've got just the right person for you. Her name is Gabrielle Rolahogin. She's a terrific lawyer. She also plays first violin in the Boston Civic Symphony Orchestra. So I met her and hit it off, and she came down. And then the first thing we had to do was conduct a trial of a municipal judge named David Hale, whose allegations against Clinton had been the basic reason for the, my appointment in the first place. He was supposed to be tried for defrauding the Small Business Administration. And I knew we couldn't have a New York lawyer. Try him in front of a Little Rock jury. I asked for a recommendation of a good trial lawyer to come in and try the case. And through the recommendations of Harry Reasoner and Davis Beck, they recommended Rusty Harden, who had just come out of the Travis County DA's office with a record of 113 convictions, including 13 first-degree murder trials. He'd been voted in Texas prosecutor of the year. So that's the way I put the team together, all based on recommendations from people I knew and I trusted who knew these people and knew they had the qualities I was looking for, which were particularly
0: important. The selection and the cultivating of a team, I'd like to keep talking about that. I've had a theory, I'll test it off you, which is talented people generally want to be around talented people that are of like minds.
1: I agree with that, totally.
0: You are a mentor to many. You're a mentor to mentors, people that now have many mentees underneath them. What do you believe are some of the keys to being a great mentor?
1: I can just start by saying that I learned from three great mentors. One was, of course, Judge Lombard, who was the attorney that I worked for that summer. And he had a great saying. It was his motto, never assume a goddamn thing. And I can't remember how many times in my life I've used that to check myself and avoid some mistake. And also he was the inspiration basically for everything I did in public service. And he went on to become a judge, and chief judge of the second circuit. And then at Davis Polk, I had two mentors, both of whom were, one was Hazard Gillespie, who himself became the U.S. attorney and I stayed on under him. His message to me always was, with three things. When you're writing a brief, always put your emphasis on the statement of facts. Because if you write the statement of facts persuasively, so the court thinks you should win, they'll find some legal theory to make that happen. And on oral argument, he passed on to me what he had learned from John W. Davis, probably one of the greatest oral advocates of our time. And he was always go for the jugular.
0: It was the same. Point. That's a highly technical advocacy strategy.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, his other message, which I mentioned before, was, you know, you can be a hard-hitting, aggressive trial lawyer and also treat everyone with civility. And my third mentor was Lawrence Walsh, who, of course, had been deputy attorney general, a federal judge, and later became the Iran-Contra Independent Counsel. And he always taught us, when you get a case don't get carried away with your own enthusiasm about your position. Step back and try to look at it the way a judge or a jury is going to look at it. Be more objective about it. Your bad facts, bring them out yourself. And never settle for good enough. Always press yourself. You know, He was sort of the first out-of-the-box thinker before that phrase ever got coined. He was always pressing us to search for some better way to do it than might have been the obvious way. Anyway, those three were very important to me. What I learned from them and what I think is really important in mentorship is, first of all, you teach by example. You have the people you're working with. If you go into court and you make an argument, afterwards, you just sit down with them. They want to know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? You explain to them why you did what you did. And secondly, I think most important of all is you try to give the young lawyers you're working with the maximum amount of responsibility, push them out there into the absolute limit. And then when they've done what they're going to do, then you're there to support them and then to tell them this you did really well. Maybe next time you could try doing the other thing, maybe this way and so forth. But you give them that immediate teeth. And so giving them the maximum responsibility with that hands on Commentary and in the process, letting them know you care about them and you really care personally about their development. That is extremely important to them. And finally, you pass on to them all of the right values, again, including how you can litigate aggressively.
0: That's so good. I'm what I hear you saying. Some of the themes are leading by example, then in explaining the why of what you just did. I hear delegate more than even the mentor is comfortable with, you try to push them further and then give immediate feedback. So they're getting real-time feedback on how they did and letting them know you care and also passing on values. I heard that when you were the United States attorney, you would go watch the first opening statement of every new AUSA, is that accurate?
1: Yes, that is true. I mean, there might have been a, when I was on trial myself, I might not have been able to do it. But except for that, I, I absolutely, that was very important to me. And another thing I used to do is I would follow what everyone was doing. And if somebody won a motion or won a, an appeal, I would make sure to, to call them up, congratulate them, or send them a note. And if they lost the case, then even more important, I would sit down with them and, and try to console them and basically tell them something that I believe you really learn more from the cases you lose sometimes than the cases you win. And I used to work long hours there on the weekends and at night. And I would make it a point to just walk the halls at night, just stop by somebody's office. How are you doing? What are you working on? Talk a little bit about their case. Not, you know, every night, but enough so that every assistant understood that I really was personally interested in what they were doing and in their professional development.
0: So, Bob, when I hear this, if I'm going to be authentic to you, I think of myself and the team of lawyers that I lead, and I'm thinking, I need to be the active lawyer who's engaged in the case. I need to do things and then explain why I'm doing them. I need to watch them and then give immediate feedback. I need to have a personal connection. And I'm like, how do you do all that? Like how in the world have you had the time and candidly the energy to invest so much in the people who you're directly working with?
1: I have the time because I make the time. You do what the things that you think are the most important. And to me, this is right up there. Sort of sacrificing your own personal involvement in and pace and I wouldn't shortcut my preparation of this cross-examination of Anthony Scott. I would go walk to halls and talk to assistants. But putting that aside, once it wasn't interfering with something I was personally doing, that was really important to me. So I found the time to, to do that.
0: You talked about values. I know one of the values you've had is family. I can look behind you and see all that family, those pictures behind you right now, How were you able to keep family? How long have you been married?
1: Well, it'll be 67 years in August.
0: 67 years of marriage, all of the career things. How have you been able to keep family as a piece of your life without losing track of what many would say is one of the most important pieces?
1: Well, I go back to when the first had our kids growing up. I live out in Darien, Connecticut, which is about an hour from New York. And I made a decision very early on that I wasn't going to be able to be home both in the morning for breakfast and at dinner at night. And I recognized very early on, as I think every parent recognizes, that morning is not what you would call quality time. Did you brush your teeth? Did you got your lunchbox? Blah, 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 blah. So I would get up at 5.15 in the morning, and I would take a very early train. I would be in the office a little after 7. And so I would have two and a half hours at least in the office before most people got there. And I got an enormous amount of work done then. And so by and large, I was able to get like a 6 o'clock train at night. I'd be home at 7 and then time to have dinner with the family and the kids and spend the night with them. So that worked out, and I kept that up basically my whole life, and that made a huge difference. As time went on, and then the kids grew up, and I had grandchildren, and I pretty much involved with them. They're all very athletic. I really enjoy going and watching their games and being invested in them as well. I just made that a priority. You obviously have to sacrifice something to give that up, but that was very important to me.
0: So if you were giving advice to a younger group of lawyers who are have a mentor. And the question they're asking is, how do I be a good mentee? What can I do so that people like Bob Fisk and all the people that invested in you, how can I be a good mentee so the best lawyers will want to invest their lives in me? What can I do?
1: Well, I think the best thing they can do is try to learn from the experiences that they've had through the mentorship and show that they're benefiting from it.
0: I want to talk about diversity. When you were with the United States Attorney's Office, and if I can, I really want to focus on a couple pieces of this. You were noted by other folks to literally change the face of the New York Prosecutor's Office in terms of women prosecutors. It was a massive shift. So when you first began as a United States attorney, how many prosecutors were there?
1: There were 100 assistants in the office, I think probably 65 criminal and 35 civil.
0: And out of the 100, how many uh, women prosecutors when you first started?
1: Well, I think there were four in the criminal division and four in the civil division. So there were eight women out of 100.
0: And when you left four years later, having been under both a Republican administration and carried over into a Democratic administration, which is a story I'd love to tell, but we probably don't have enough time. But when you left, how many women federal prosecutors were there?
1: I think there were close to 40. I'd worked at Davis Polk. I'd worked with a number of women lawyers, and I was trying to promote them at Davis Polk before I went up there. But when I got up there and I saw that imbalance... It was very important to me that we need to have more women in this office. And I first thought that, you know, I'm going to make a special effort to reach out to get more women. But then I began to look at the resumes that had come in during the interim between Paul Curran's resignation and the time I was appointed. And as I looked at the resumes, I said, I don't have to make any special effort here. All I have to do is tell the hiring committee, just make your decisions totally on the merits pretend there's no name at the top of the page, just look at the record and make the decision based on that. And I think what the problem was that prior to the time I came, there had been a perception probably led by a very wonderful public servant named Sylvia O'Malo, who'd been in the U.S. Attorney's Office for years and had been head of the criminal division just before I came in. And he had the perception that women, particularly in the criminal side, just weren't tough enough. They couldn't take the rough and tumble of the courtroom. And so even though they looked, their resumes look great, they just couldn't stand up. So he put a huge damper on the hiring of women. From my own experience, I didn't believe that. So I just told the hiring committee, forget about that. And so from that point on, the way it worked was the hiring committee' basic philosophy was if they felt that the person they were interviewing was somebody that they would be very happy to have as a colleague in the office, then they would pass them on to me for a decision. And I basically, over, over the four years, probably was pretty much 50-50 in terms of men and women. So when I left, we had thirty six, and We also had several in executive positions, including the first woman chief of the civil division. That was coming up. And then the thing that I think the reason people say it changed the face of practice in New York, is true for the U.S. Attorney's Office. And once that started, all of my successes continued it completely.
0: So without worrying about the specifics and I could run through like circumstances beyond your control where you've been focused on, for example, the white water, you've been appointed independent counsel, you've assembled a team, it's ready to go, like you were moving downfield and then all of a sudden the rug gets swept out underneath you because politics get involved. And there are many examples like that I could cover that factually, I just, I'm not worried about the facts, but I'm curious, how do you stay positive and optimistic when things beyond your control happen that affect what you're focused on doing?
1: I think the best way to answer that is to focus on what you just said, circumstances beyond your control. And I think my attitude, and there've been a couple others in my life besides the whitewater replacement. My attitude was, first of all, this is not something, it's my fault. You know, I haven't had anything to do with this. It's beyond my control. And secondly, more important, You know, there's a old cliche, but it's a good one. You know, tomorrow is the first day of the rest day of your life. And so the question is, what's the rest of my life going to be like? Am I going to spend it moping about the fact that I was so unfairly treated here? Or am I going to just put my chin up and try to keep going? And that's what kind of a life do I want to have going forward? Do I want to have an uplifting life or do I want to be morose about what happened in the past? And that's been my attitude. And I think it's carried me through very effectively.
0: What's the longest trial you've had in your career?
1: Oh, uh, that's easy. Uh, it was a trial in Miami, Florida, criminal trial. Started in October, 1991, shortly after I was inducted as president of the college. and ended in August, 1992, three months before I turned the reins over to Bill hate So it was nine months.
0: For most of us, the prospect of a trial that long seems almost incomprehensible from a stamina perspective, just a physical, mental, emotional stamina. How did you get through that without losing your mind, losing your health? What were the keys to navigating a battle like that?
1: Well, actually, that trial was less stressful than a couple of others I could talk about in a minute. Principally because there were four defendants, I was representing one. And a lot of the testimony related to the other defendants. So when that was going on, I basically was a spectator. So it wasn't very stressful. But nonetheless, it was being in court every day. And we had a regular routine. There was a hotel on Miami Beach called the Alexander. And we all had rooms there. We're basically, we basically wouldn't call it a suite, but it was a living room and a kitchen and a bedroom. I would get up every morning before the trial and run on the beach for like 45 minutes or an hour and then, then take swim in the ocean and then go into trial. I'm a big believer in that, particularly in some of the other trials I had when I was U.S. attorney. I think exercising during the trial is crucial not only to keep yourself in physical shape, but it's a wonderful stress reliever. Probably in many ways, when I was trying the case against Anthony Scotto, That with probably a 10 week trial with a sequestered jury. Basically, the trial would be over. I'd have a sandwich in the office. I would work till 10 o'clock, and I had a small apartment in Washington Square Park. And I would come back there at 10 o'clock, and I would run around the park for an hour till 11. I'd come back and I'd have a beer and go to sleep. And I would just sleep like a log right through. I mean, it was a wonderful stress releaser. I'd get up at six and go back and prepare for the next day. But without that exercise every night, I think it would have been a much more difficult thing. But I think exercise during a long trial is crucial.
0: Well, let's talk about the American College of Trial Lawyers. What does the American College of Trial Lawyers mean to you?
1: Well, I think it means a lot of things. It means a lot of friendships, friendships of lawyers all around the country. You know, we all make friends in our own area. But I think one of the greatest benefits to me from the college has been the friendships I've made for people all around the country, professionally as well as socially. People in my firm, they'll send a memorandum around an email, we need a lawyer in X city. Usually I'm the one that responds and say, well, I yeah, I call somebody in the college and, and right away we've got a good lawyer. So um, that's one part of it. But I think most important, it's just the high quality, the professionalism and the character of the people that are, are in the college. Oh, yeah. And in terms of the college itself and its impact, I think one thing that separates it from so many other organizations is its effort to be totally nonpartisan. It doesn't have a plaintiff's point of view or a defendant's point of view. And I think every president of the college is very careful when it selecting committees to, to deal with substantive issues to make sure that the committees are balanced between people with different points of view so that when the college speaks, its voice is heard and recognizes some college that is expressing a truly independent point of view of what's really best for the particular issue. So I think that's one of the things that stands out for me. And then just the high quality of the people that I've gotten to know, the quality of the board meetings, the board of regents, Larry can speak to this too, but there are a lot of different points of view in those board meetings. And sometimes people disagree violently, but it's always extremely collegial. It's always extremely civil. It's always completely respectful. And so a lot of it gets accomplished because people are really all working together for
0: a common good. I want to ask you more questions about the college, and I'm going to, but I can't ignore what you just said, which is people disagree violently, but it's collegial. How does that work? And I really mean in life, how can in a world where today, if you think of how polarized we are in a society of how different people disagree violently about lots of issues if you were to just share your perspective how can we disagree violently and still be kind and civil
1: well one of the things that makes it easier with the college is that everyone respects everyone else enormously for their professional accomplishments and just for the kind of people they are people consider them friends So friends can disagree about things and people articulate extremely forceful, eloquent positions on one side. And somebody will just say, well, you know, that was brilliant, but I couldn't disagree more. And here's the reasons I disagree. And then they state their side.
0: What's a favorite memory you have of engaging with other fellows during your time of either serving the college in a leadership role or just being a part of the college?
1: One of the people I had the fortune to become great friends with was Gene Lafitte, another former president of the college from New Orleans, and I got to know him first when we were both on the ABA Judiciary Committee together and we became really good friends. And in 1995, he invited me to come down to New Orleans and go duck hunting with him, and at least they had over in the Cajun country. I went down there, I think, four years, and his firm, Lisko and Lewis, had a, this lease, and there were seven duck blinds, and there were seven guides with their dogs, and there were seven Lewis and Lisko partners, and then they invited seven guests, and the guests were usually Henry Politz, who was the chief judge of the Fifth Circuit. Gene Davis, another Fifth Circuit judge, three general counsels of major oil companies that Lisko and Lewis represented, and I was fortunate to be one of the others. It was wonderful. I learned how to do reasonably well at duck hunting, which is not an easy thing to do, but the best part of it was just a comradee. And actually, as you probably noticed from my book, one of the most interesting assignments I've had Arose rose out of that when I was asked by Judge Politz to represent a judicial counsel in investigations of use of conduct by a federal judge in Fort Worth. But that friendship with Gene, and it extended beyond that. We took trips together, bicycle trips. We took cruises, and it was a, just a very close relationship. And it was a very sad day for me and for the college when he passed
0: away earlier last year. I meant to say this earlier, but for anybody that's interested, you just need to Google on Amazon, Bob Fisk, and the name of his book is Prosecutor, Defender, Counselor. It's excellent. It is very, very, very good. It's good reading, and it's filled with good stories and also a lot of wisdom. I want to read you a quote and just ask your thoughts on it. You can share where it comes from. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack.
1: Yeah, well, that's a famous quote from Rudyard Kipling, and I used that at Davis Polk. They had a a rule at Davis Polk that there was a mandatory retirement at age 70, and when I was approaching age 70, the management committee basically asked me would I be willing to stay on, and they would waive that requirement. And I said, well, let's do it year by year. So I did it year by year until I reached the age of 80. And that's when I used the analogy from Rudyard Kipling to say that it was true at Davis Polk that the strength of the pack was the wolf and the strength of the wolf was the pack.
0: Let's talk about a few practical things. What advice would you give someone on dealing with difficult opposing counsel, recalcitrant, rude, disrespectful unprofessional what advice would you give in dealing with that category of people
1: assuming that there's no ethical issues in terms of whether you can trust them or not if they're just difficult to deal with i've never changed my approach i'm who i am and they can be who they are and it really doesn't bother me if they won't return phone calls then i don't return their phone calls but i don't change my approach my attitude towards them I treat them the same way I would treat everybody else. And I just don't let it bother me.
0: Let's shift to difficult judges.
1: Sure. I've had those. I think, again, you have to be respectful to the judge, even if, if the judge is giving you a difficult time. Over the course of a long trial, if you have a running battle with the judge, I think if you continue to be respectful, I think the jury, over time, I think will become sympathetic. It's harder in a short trial. In a long trial, sometimes that can turn the jury very much in your favor. But I never thought it was productive to get in a shouting match back and forth with the judge. they are going to lose those every time.
0: Are you more of a visual or an auditory or an experiential learner?
1: I think a combination of audio and
0: visual. If you had the choice in where you're starting to learn about a new topic, do you prefer to read about it? or have someone tell you about it.
1: I'd rather have somebody tell me about it because I can ask questions
0: as I go along. I have a series of questions I love asking people. And the first is a broad question to a group of lawyers who are newer lawyers. They're in the first 10 years of their practice. They have a job and they're in a practice. If you could speak a piece of advice to that group of lawyers that are, say, 25 to late 30s, what would you say to them?
1: Well, first of all, I would try to say to them, find a mentor, find somebody that you admire, try to get to work with that person, and then try to learn from them and try to have them do all the things that I described earlier. And secondly, I always told the associates that worked with me, and it was my own experience growing up. And I'm talking now about litigation. If you can learn the facts, if you can be the one that really knows the facts, if you're a young associate, that becomes obvious in meetings. The partners are talking about the case. You speak up and you show them that you know what, then they're going to turn to you time and time again. And that's how you sort of separate yourself from the pack. So spend the time and become basically invaluable because you know more about it than anybody else.
0: Second group of people. Established in their career, they're, say, 40 to early 50s. They've achieved some level of success and stability, but they still have a long way to go. They're not done. They have a lot of chapters, especially if they practice till they're 80. A 50-year-old would still have another 30 years. If you were to speak to that group, what piece of advice would you give them?
1: I would say, first of all, if they hadn't done it already... This is the time to try to reach out and try to do more for the community in terms of public service. And then also, secondly, again, this is their opportunity to be the mentor for younger lawyers coming up.
0: Well, Bob, I really have appreciated our time for people that want more. Just a couple of quick reference points. One, I would recommend anyone interested in learning more about the Whitewater independent Council chapter, you gave a talk to the Greenwich Men's Association. And if you just Google Bob Fisk Greenwich, it will come up. And it really, it's almost like a history lesson in the independent Council's office layered in with your story. I thought that was very instructive. I also would tell people if you want to see more about Bob's commitment to the public service aspect there's a FISC fellowship with the University of Michigan that is provides an opportunity for law students that can serve in public service. And it really is a neat program with a lot of success stories that are coming out of that. Well on behalf of the American College of Trial Lawyers, thank you for the example that you have shown to so many. Thank you for the mentorship that you've shown over people who now mentor other people. Thank you for your public service. Thank you for your trailblazing, both in terms of your practice and your cases, but even the book, being so bold to do that on behalf of the American College. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion.